For MayPoultry.com, I'm Erica Schaefer, Digital Media Senior Editor. As panic buying overwhelmed grocery retail, the coronavirus pandemic flipped the script on consumer food buying trends. Instead of going out to eat, consumers were buying their comfort foods in bulk. Meat and poultry, along with toilet paper and Clorox wipes, topped shelter-in-place shopping lists. So where were plant-based proteins in the mix? The social media memes were less than flattering. Refrigerated meat cases standing empty, save for plentiful plant-based alternatives grouped together. But the truth is no joke. Plant-based proteins are holding their own during these strange times. Plant-based protein producers mostly have avoided the product shortages and supply gaps currently hounding traditional meat processors. To get clued in to just how well plant-based proteins are getting along during the pandemic, Meat and Poultry spoke with Danny O'Malley, founder and president of Before the Butcher, a maker of plant-based proteins. He talked about the company and its uncut line of plant-based products. He also discussed the rapid rise of plant-based meat alternatives, the impact of the current pandemic on growth, and the way forward for the category in the age of coronavirus. O'Malley has 25 years of professional experience in the food service segment that includes working for Cisco, one of the leading food service distributors in the world. But about six years ago, he made the leap to a company called, I'm sure you've heard of it, Beyond Meat. O'Malley started at Beyond Meat when the company was just gaining traction in the marketplace, and he says that experience gave him tremendous insight to start before the butcher. So in September of 2017, O'Malley left Beyond Meat and jumped into becoming a plant-based protein manufacturer. His target market, initially, was familiar territory. Uh, After three years, I left Beyond Meat uh, and jumped into uh, doing this uh, myself with an incredible group of people around me uh, to help it get uh, kicked off. And, um, and we started in, in food service. So our, our focus, that, that, that's a big part of my background is food service. So I'm really familiar with the ins and outs of what it takes to be successful in food service. And fortunately, uh, you know, with my time at Beyond Meat, uh, I, w- I was able to really, uh, you know, get a better understanding what uh, this was all about and, and what was coming, or at least what I thought was coming. Um, and the surge of interest in plant-based uh, meat products like, like we're putting out today. So uh, 2017, uh, September was our start into, uh, beyond, uh, into our products uh, with, with uh, Before the Butcher, uh, with a great uh, R&D team and team around me. We were able to develop eight products uh, to get started in food service. Um, I'm really excited about uh, that original launch. So our focus, Erica, was from the very beginning to provide a greater variety, uh, a little bit more affordability, and better nutritionals. And, and across the board, I, I think we've done a fantastic job of that. We, we have some amazing products that really have that bite and chew and texture like you get from uh, animal-based proteins, the things that we're all familiar with and comfortable with and, and look for. Um, when we're searching these type of products, I, I think we really knocked it out of the park. In fact, I know we did. And, 
Um, and we started in food service and uh, were very successful in a very short period of time in about six or seven months. We, we moved uh, from one part of the country. We're based on the, on the West Coast um, in Southern California. And we were able to move all the way across the country and cover nationally in about, uh, in about seven months. So amazing movement uh, on food service. <clears throat> and then in uh, um, late last year in, in November, late October, November of 2019, uh, we moved into uh, retail and uh, we've had tremendous success in retail as well. We, we, we launched what we call uh, our family of plant-based patties uh, again, variety is important to us. The nutritionals and uh, and the, the bite, the chew, the texture, uh, all very, very important. And uh, being a little bit more affordable than our competitors, all important to us. And we hit the market that way with our uh, plant-based patties. We've got four of them, our uncut plant-based original burger, uh, which is similar to a beef burger, but beef-free, of course. And then we have our uncut savory chicken burger, our uncut roasted turkey burger, and our uncut sausage patty. And nearly every one of our close to 1,000 retailers that carry our products carry them all. So we're really excited about it. They love the variety that we're able to provide for their customers and uh, for our customers as well. And uh, all of our products are gluten-free. Um, they're non-GMO, project verified, and they're also certified plant-based, which is is really cool and really important for us too. Now, is this uncut line? Um, did that was that the food service product that you then transitioned to retail, or is uncut and your food service line different? Do they have different names? Or yeah, uh, that's actually a really good question. So we we did some transitioning. We when we originally started at food service, uh, we we called our original burger, which is now the uncut uh, burger. We called it the before burger. And so when we were looking at retail and saying, hey, we're, we're going to make this transition, we, we looked at uh, how we had positioned ourselves in food service and decided that we needed to make a few adjustments for retail. And we, we, we uh, went out to an amazing marketing team and who helped us do some research and development on names and uncut is what continued to surface to the top. And so we went with Uncut. And Uncut is really just a continuation of who we are with Before the Butcher. Before the Butcher, that, that name came up. And we developed that name because we kept thinking about uh, what people do when they're looking for animal-based proteins when they go into a grocery store. We knew eventually we'd get into retail. And uh, we kept thinking, well, you know, people go into the butcher department, you know, whether they pick it up in the self-serve or they go to the butcher, they go to the butcher department. And we wanted people to think about our plant-based products before they go to the butcher. That's where before the butcher came up. And then, then as we continued to evolve and said, hey, look, we need something kind of catchy, something people remember, uh, something that's easy and stands out and is very clear when you look at the, the shelf and, and you can see that when you see our products on the shelf, they really pop and stand out. Uh, and we think much more than our competitors. But um, so as, as we thought about that, we're, we're thinking about, well, what, what can we say? How can we say it in one word and make it simple for people to remember our brand? And we kept flashing back to before the butcher and thinking, well, before you go into the butcher, uh, we want you to think about our products, right? 
So what does the butcher do? Generally, the butcher, if you go up to the butcher and say, hey, I want this, I want that, and, you know, I want a slab of this or that, they'll go cut the product. So we thought, well, what about uncut? Our product is uncut. And so that was that kind of transition. And then we backed it into food service. So we went back to food service and, and uh, kind of layered in uncut into food service. So whether you're looking at our products on the food service side um, or you're looking at it on the retail side, the brand itself today is uncut. What's driving meat consumers' purchasing decisions during the coronavirus pandemic? Why did the members of a family-owned salami and old-world prosciutto business decide to sell after 70 years? You can get the answers to these questions and the stories behind them from the Meat and Poultry Podcast. Every week, the Meat and Poultry Podcast brings you the latest news, trends, technologies, and people in the world of meat and poultry processing. Valuable insights from industry experts are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen to your favorite programs. circle back to um, how your product was displayed at retail because the thing that stood out to me was that at Bristol Farms the product was displayed in the meat counter. So how well did that strategy work in terms of encouraging consumers to try it and then getting them to buy it? Well, that, that's a really excellent question. I love that question uh, because um, it, we were somewhat strategic with, with Bristol Farms. Fortunately, I had a, a, a really, really great relationship, uh, and I still do, with the uh, director of meat from uh, Bristol Farms. And um, when we were in food service, this is going back um, back to 2018, um, and I knew we wanted to move into retail. I I had an opportunity to sit down with with this gentleman several times, and and we talked about it. and And Bristol Farms likes to see themselves as a leader um, in in anything that has to do with uh, retail or grocery, and they and they want to be on, on top of any curve that's happening or uh, what's happening and, and the interest from their consumer or their customer. So we sat down several times and we were talking about retail, retail. He says, well, you got retail. We want to get on the shelves. We love that you're local and, and we want to support you and so on and so forth. And I, I, one day we were talking and I said to him, I said, Rick, what about getting our products on your shelves before we get it into retail packaging? And, and he said, Danny, what do you think? And I said, what about behind the glass? What about putting it right there so the butchers can wrap it up in butchered paper just like they do for regular um, you know, animal-based proteins, whether it be chicken or, or, or seafood or, or meat uh, you know, or pork? And he said, Danny, I, I don't know. He says, that, that seems like a big stretch to me. And I, I said, well, I, I think we're going to find that we're going to be stretching a bit, but I don't think it's going to be long before people start catching up and doing the same thing. And I, it would be amazing for both of our companies to be, to be the first in a, in a retail conventional retail chain to do this. And so he said, well, I don't know. Let me think about it. And so a couple of months went by and I got back in front of him. I think this was December of 2018 or something like that. And, um, and I said to him, uh, 
no, actually, he said to me, he says, Danny, we're going to do it. And I said, what are you going to do, Rick? He says, we're going to put your products behind the glass. And I said, that is amazing. So we went ahead and did that a few months later. Uh, and they launched it into a brand new store in the Orvalinda, California. And it was extremely successful. I, I was there part of time helping to educate uh, customers as they came in. And uh, they did a great job of displaying the product. And they did uh, further um, processed products where they actually took our products and made it, uh, you know, um, you know, you know, took a potato and stuffed it with our chorizo and they, they actually took our burger meat and, and made a Southwestern burger and they made some taco meat and, uh, you know, some of the products they, they put out there as is, and it was always available. So we would have our sausage patties and our, um, chicken patties out there and some other things. And you could just go up to the butcher and say, Hey, I want a pound of this or give me two pieces of that. And so to get back to your question, because I, I think I, I, I've been circling around a little bit, is uh, we were very successful doing that. Um, but the end all was not so much that we put it behind the glass, but it was more uh, getting the exposure. And we got that exposure nationally because we had done something nobody else had done at that point in time in a, um, in a retail uh, grocery store chain. Um, and so uh, I got calls from literally the, the weekend after it, it, uh, it got out to the media and we started having some media exposure. I got calls on Monday from uh, Ralph's, from Albertson's. Mm -hmm. And uh, within two weeks, I had almost every major retailer in the country uh, asking what this was all about and having interest in our products. And then we were able to transition after that point in time to our packaged goods. Uh, so right now, uh, uh, Bristol Farms still is the only one that has our products behind the glass. And it really accomplished what we hoped it would, which was help, you know, helping to expose our brand to, uh, to, to retailers that didn't know anything about it. And, and now we're in close to a thousand locations uh, throughout various different parts of the country uh, because of that exposure. And it was just a fantastic experience for us. Um, and we're, we were excited about that opportunity. And today it still comes up. I mean, I mean this is a year ago and you're, you're set up and, and talking about it, which is just mm -hmm. great. Yeah, I hadn't seen anything like that. And plant-based proteins, you know, alternative proteins were really coming on. And but that really held an image for me for uh, Uncut because that was the only brand that I could think of that was approaching, um, reaching out to the consumer in that way. So now we're talking about um, frozen production and what is driving your pivot to frozen production and why? Was there a pre-pandemic plan and is there a post-pandemic plan for frozen production? Well, Erica, that's a great question. And so we created a perception that's similar to our competitors that are in the meat department, in the fresh meat department. Uh, but honestly, we all make, uh, we, in that area, we're all making the product frozen and the retail is actually, retailer is actually slacking it out. So our products are all created and developed frozen. And the retailer makes the choice to put it out on the shelf as a fresh product, they slack it or they thaw it out and they put it out on the shelf. 
So we didn't transition to frozen. We always were frozen. And the reason we did that was um, number one, shelf life, but our products actually perform, in my opinion, better that way uh, as a frozen product uh, because we're able to flash freeze it uh, immediately and hold that freshness, freshness in and then they cook off. Whether you're going to cook our products as a thawed out product or you cook it frozen, either way, they cook off really great. Um, and, and so that, that was never really a transition we made. It just was a perception that we had made that transition. Our products were always frozen going into the retailer or the food service operator. Data released by the Plant-Based Foods Association and the Good Food Institute show retail sales of plant-based alternatives to conventional meat, dairy, eggs, and seafood products reached $5 billion in 2019, an 11.4% increase during the past year. The plant-based meat category alone generated $939 million in sales in 2019, up 18% during the past year. The data show plant-based meats make up 2% of retail packaged meat sales. Notably, sales of refrigerated plant-based meats rose 63% during the year. The data was obtained over a 52-week period ending December 2019 from the SpinScan Natural and Specialty Gourmet and SpinScan Conventional Multi-Outlet Channels. Additionally, 56% of shoppers have prepared plant-based meat alternatives, according to the Power of Meat 2020 report, sponsored by Sealed Air and compiled by San Antonio, Texas-based 210 Analytics. Most of those consumers have tried plant-based products just once or prepare them every few months. Flexitarians are the most frequent consumers of plant-based meat alternatives. Okay. And, you know, I think you've maybe seen the social media memes where you see empty freezer cases that used to have a lot of meat in them and then the section where the plant-based proteins are still fairly plentiful but truthfully sales of plant-based proteins are doing pretty well um can you yeah. talk about the perception of how yeah competitive well, I, I, really is <laughs> I find a lot of humor in that. I, I got a kick out of it when I, I, I saw it. I, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, honestly, um, we were able to keep up uh, with the products and they were able to restock our products on the shelves and uh, the, the uh, producers of animal-based proteins weren't. And I think that's why in a lot of those cases you saw it there. Uh, but they were also taking pictures of the areas where uh, um, it's fresh, um, vegan and vegetarian products that are geared and meant for those areas. If they were taking pictures in the meat department, you probably wouldn't have seen much of our products at all or just scattered uh, a few of them left because they were able to restock our products. We had our products available. And I think that was similar with our competitors out there that um, when the meat companies were running out, we still had product available at the uh, distribution centers for these retailers and in our warehouse. And to this day, we still do. For Before the butcher and uncut, we never ran out of product. We always had product in stock, and we do to this day. So I, I think there was uh, – you're always going to have your naysayers and people that are looking 
uh, to dig in, uh, dig in deep and, and find problems or issues with anything in life. And I, I got a kick out of it. It was, it was humorous to me because those of us in the industry know that really wasn't the case. Our sales were, for all of us, I think, uh, our sales actually jumped. We were able to meet the demand and we were able to keep the, the, the shelves stocked much better than our competitors in uh, animal-based proteins. And what does that say about the production practices in the plant-based segment? Because we know that a lot of the supply chain disruptions have to do with the meat packers getting sick, you know, their, their employees mm -hmm. getting sick. Um, not that it was something you intended, but is there a subliminal or, you know, an, an undercurrent message that the consumer is receiving about how your products are produced? Well, Erica, I, I, look, uh, I, I'm not going to pick on the uh, big meat companies uh, uh, in this, specifically in this, because the control of what happens today with the coronavirus or COVID is, is really uh, very difficult. Um, somebody could walk into your plant and have no symptoms at all and spread it uh, because they're asymptomatic. Um, and, and so that, that's not an issue specific to meat. That's an issue to all of us producing any kind of product across the board. I don't care what kind of manufacturing you're in uh, and in food manufacturing. The step up we have in food manufacturing is um, whether it's a USDA plant or an FDA plant, um, we, we have all, you know, even before this, have had standards or have standards that are far beyond what you would see in a normal manufacturing plant that isn't uh, manufacturing meat uh, or ma manufacturing food. Uh, so a lot of the standards that we're trying to lift even higher today, and, and I believe everybody is doing that without question, um, was already met in, in the biggest way. The one thing we can't control is somebody bringing it from the outside. Uh, maybe because uh, plant-based and the production of plant-based uh, proteins like ours is, is so much lower percentage of the overall picture of, of meat in uh, retail or food service, you know, we're, we're 1% or maybe a little over 1% that the exposure to that is limited compared to the meat industry. So I, I think we're all very concerned about it. I think we all have to be judicious as to how we approach this and do everything we can to prevent the spread of the virus within our plants. And then if something does happen, and sometimes it is out of our control because it's brought in and we don't see it because we can't see it, then we do everything we can to step back, uh, make the adjustments uh, before we continue to produce the products. And I would have to say that uh, these large meat manufacturers or plant-based manufacturers or anybody out there manufacturing products today have uh, a, a, an acute awareness um, and we've all stepped up in the biggest way to be as safe as we can and produce our products safely for the consumer. And has your company been affected at all with employees perhaps um, falling victim to the coronavirus or COVID-19? So uh, we, we have two production facilities. 
Um, our main one in uh, San Diego that um, our sister company produces product uh, for us there. And then we have another facility up in Burbine. Uh, one facility we have had some cases and, and we've uh, made all the adjustments uh, to accommodate that. Uh, and the other facility we've had no cases at all. So uh, we were not in production with our products uh, when this happened. Uh, and um, anytime that we've been in production, that the employees that are direct employees of before the butcher have not been affected today, as of today. That's the show for this week. Next week, we continue our conversation with Danny O'Malley. He gives his take on the prospects of the plant-based protein segment, and he explains why, at some point, plant-based protein manufacturers find friends in the meat industry. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a like and leave us a review as it helps support the program. You can stay social with us by searching at Meat Poultry on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And for more stories from the meat and poultry processing industry, head over to meatpoultry.com. I'm Erica Schaefer. Thanks for listening.